Chapter 19 of Down in Water Street by Samuel Hadley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19, My Brother. How can I describe Colonel H. H. Hadley, my beloved and only brother, probably the most successful soul winner the Old Water Street Mission has ever turned out? Someone else should write this narrative, for it is hard to put in type the history of one whom you love as I do the subject of this chapter. Henry Harrison Hadley was born February 11, 1841. He is about one year and a half older than the writer. In childhood, we were near enough of one age to be playmates back as far as I can remember. We never slept apart or ate apart or played or worked apart. We had no secrets from each other, and when we discarded short pants at a very early age and were able to escort the rosy-cheeked damsels home from the spelling schools and corn-husking and quilting parties and apple-butter billens, we could scarcely wait for the other to come home to relate the wondrous mystery of the feminine love and vows we had each been able to coax from our best girl. Oh, those happy days, long since departed. We worked hard all day and in the night went coon-hunting, or to spelling schools, or to some wonderful revival meeting where sinners would get under conviction at the powerful preaching of the old-fashioned gospel and weep their way to the altar or mourner's bench. And it was a bench, too, and sometimes a fence-rail. They would wring their hands and howl and cry, and at last, amid songs and shouts of victory from stentorian lungs, they would spring into the air and shout and hug their old companions and praise God till you could hear them nearly half-mile off. Sometimes they would fall on the floor as stiff as a crowbar and have to be carried home across the fields, through the woods, and over stake and rider fences. The neighbors would sit around the fireplaces and sing low, sweet songs until morning. These men would never fall back to the world afterwards. They had got a view of Canaan, they had tasted of its precious fruits, they had heard the sweet echo of the heavenly choir, and they stood firm as rocks. There was no agnosticism there. They could not read, many of them, but they could hear, and they had heard something they could never forget. It was not that Moses did not write the Pentateuch, nor that Noah and the Ark and Jonah and the whale were only folklore, nor that the beginning of all life was protoplasm and then a tadpole, etc., etc., etc. They had a vision of Jesus, and you could not fool them with two Isaiahs. They went through life shouting, and they died shouting Jesus' precious name, and they fairly terrified the devil away from their deathbeds. All these scenes we boys saw with wonder, and talked them over on our way home through the lonely woods. Our home always had an extra bed for preachers, and we boys would sit around the fireplace and hear them relate their remarkable adventures, and help them carry those wonderful saddlebags to their room. So we grew up, my brother growing to be a tall, handsome fellow, the favorite of all the pretty girls in the neighborhood. How well I remember when he was compelled to remain away from home the first night. I thought morning would never come. When we both reached the age of young manhood, I am sorry to say I got into bad company. I associated with men older than myself, men who were noted for their sporting character and racehorses. I soon had a racehorse myself, and then I learned to drink whiskey. Never shall I forget one eventful night when I took my dear brother away on a long horseback ride and gave him his first drink of whiskey. His astonishment when he found that I not only drank, but that I actually had a bottle of whiskey in my pocket was great. But I finally persuaded him to take that fateful first drink. The war broke out, and my darling handsome brother volunteered in the 90th Ohio Infantry. 
The day of his departure seems but yesterday. How I remember with tears to this day the dumb agony which almost killed me as we lay on the floor in our little parlor locked in each other's arms. Must he leave me? How could I live without him? Could I not go too? Oh no, I was lame for life and they would not take me. At last the day came, and with the soul-stirring music of the drum and fife, and the brave tears and smiles and fond goodbyes of father, mother, brothers, sisters, sweethearts, and neighbors, the regiment marched away. They took the train and went to swell the great army of the North. Now and then a letter came in our weekly mail which told of heavy marching, severe fighting, and little to eat. At last from a comrade came the heartbreaking news of my brother being wounded, sick, and probably dying at a hospital at Nashville, Tennessee. At once I determined to go to him. I got the money together, went to the county seat in town, bought a ticket for Cincinnati, and took my first ride on a railroad, 125 miles away. At Cincinnati, I had my first view of a river, the Ohio. It was very high and covered with floating ice. To me, it seemed certain death to embark on a steamboat to go down that river. Nevertheless, I went. At Louisville, I had to halt for three days, for General Morgan had burned the bridges on the Louisville and Nashville Railway, but we got underway, and our train was the first to pass over the new bridges. All through Kentucky and Tennessee, the ravages of war were everywhere visible. At Nashville, I saw dead mules in the streets, soldiers everywhere, and long trains of army wagons forever passing by. I made my way with a beating heart to the hospital, an old college building, where my brother was said to be. When I went into the office and asked a soldier clerk about him, he said, after looking over the register, Your brother is dead. I think you will find him in the dead house, an old frame building in the yard. We failed to find him there among the many dead soldiers, and it was then discovered that he had been transferred to another hospital. On going there, I heard he had been carried to the depot. A tag had been put on his blouse ticketing him through to New Lexington, Ohio, and I had passed him at Louisville. It requires passes from headquarters either to get in or out of the lines, and I found it difficult to get away. But at last I reached home and found my brother, but oh, how changed. Not a bit of hair was on his head, and he weighed only 69 pounds. It was at this time that our father died. Mother died shortly after he enlisted. Our home was soon broken up, and my brother, regaining his health, soon re-enlisted in the Signal Corps. From this time on, his promotion was rapid. When the war was over, he came home and began life again, but drink and sin made fearful inroads upon him. He drank heavily, but being a powerful man, it did not seem to make such havoc in his case as it did in mine. Besides, when I drank whiskey, I paid attention to it and nothing else. When Jesus so wonderfully and mercifully saved me, my first thought was for my brother, but he had become an unbeliever at heart, and I knew it would do no good to talk to him, so I talked to Jesus about it all the time. I told him how I loved my brother, that I had given him his first drink of whiskey, and that I wanted him saved. I had been saved for over four years, and Harry had watched me like a cat. God helped me to do some things which my brother knew no one but God, if there was one, could make me do. Then the drink seemed to get the best of him, and he got worse. As soon as I was saved, I slowly went up while he went down. I sent him an invitation to come to my opening at the mission, and he saw Big Jim start for heaven, but he was pretty full at the time. There, he said to himself, if religion can do anything for that man, I will believe. God took him at his word, and Jim was saved. 
On the 28th of July, 1886, my dear brother came down to see me. He had been on a fearful debauch and was trying the old, old racket of sobering up. I persuaded him to stay to supper. Our only sister was visiting us at the time, and she and my dear wife joined me in coaxing him to stay. He did so and went down to the meeting. It was a very hot night, and only thirty-six people were present, but the house was full, the Holy Spirit had possession, and everybody was aware of it. After a very spiritual reading of the scripture, with song and testimony, I gave the invitation, and to my unspeakable joy my brother not only raised his hand, but rose to his feet and said, Pray for me. He came forward with some poor tramps, and we got down on our knees. How can I describe this scene? Here was my precious brother, for whom I had been praying so long, on his knees at our mercy seat. My soul was too full for utterance. It was a solemn time. I dared not pray aloud myself. I feared I would break down. So I called on Brother Smith, my assistant, a blessed man of God, and he took my brother in his arms of love and faith and laid him at Jesus' blessed feet. Jesus took him, bless his dear name. Of course he did. And he has had him ever since. Harry was half deranged from the terrible effects of drink, and he turned to me in a sort of bewildered way and said, Why, Hop, I can't feel bad any more. No, my precious brother, said I, and you never will, for Jesus has taken away all your sins. He soon found it out. Oh, what a night that was. I hardly knew whether I was in the body or out of the body. My brother lived away up in 170th Street in Tremont, and I went far on the road home with him. He came down nearly every night and always spoke. He had been quite a Tammany politician and was counted a good lawyer, but the boys could not get him to drink. He did smoke, however, and many a rub did he get in Old Water Street Mission about it. Like most of the users of the weed, it would make him mad, but God in his tenderness soon showed him how to lean on him, and he gave it up. He soon got into rescue work as superintendent of the Avenue A Mission. It was then under the care of St. George's Church, and though they had been running it for three years, they had no converts, but men were converted from the very day my brother took hold of it. After 18 months' service there, he was called to start St. Bartholomew's Rescue Mission in East 42nd Street, under the care of St. Bartholomew's Church, the Reverend David H. Greer, D.D., Rector. After a successful trial in a store they had rented, through the efforts of Mr. Cornelius Vanderbilt and his honored mother, a large building was erected, costing with the real estate $300,000, and the lower hall was fitted up for a rescue mission for my brother. One of the finest organs in the city was purchased, and one of the most efficient players in New York had charge of it. This was one of the sites of the city, and scores of poor drunkards were saved. After being there seven years, my brother conceived the plan of introducing the church army into this country, and having it adopted as a branch of rescue work within the Protestant Episcopal Church. It had been, and is now, a very important branch of evangelistic and rescue work in the large cities of England, and is a part of the Church of England. After a visit to England, the church army was duly incorporated and launched in this country under the Parochial Society of the Protestant Episcopal Church, which includes New York City and the surrounding towns. Bishop Potter designated my brother as General of the United States Church Army, and the work was begun with a fine prospect of success. In order to bring this about, my brother found it necessary to resign his position in the St. Bartholomew's Rescue Mission, and it has never been carried on since. Two more large buildings similar to the first have been erected adjoining it on the east 
and altogether this is probably the busiest center of operations for missionary church work in this country tens of thousands of dollars are spent yearly to carry it on and under the able and superior management of dr greer and his corps of assistants it is reaching and aiding more needy tenement house people by far than any other single church in the city a german church has also been started the german converts from the rescue mission forming the nucleus of this congregation colonel hadley carried on the church army work in new york city and many of the larger eastern cities with great success his rescue posts in the red light district on the lower east side will be long remembered church army posts were established in jersey city yonkers new haven boston and new bedford unfortunately no financial plan had been perfected to assist colonel hadley and he became heavily involved with the tremendous pressure of work upon him and the necessary expenses he broke down under the ceaseless strain and was compelled to resign this important position some years prior to this the christian abstinence union had been conceived by mr john s hyler the great candy manufacturer the idea was to have all people who were christians and total abstainers wear a badge to show that they were not afraid to be known as marked men for god the grand army men wear a button to show to all the world that they were a part and parcel of that illustrious conflict to preserve our beloved flag and country and why not have those who are enlisted under the glorious and imperishable blood-stained banner of our lord and saviour jesus christ wear a sign clearly visible to all the world to show that they for jesus sake abstain wholly from alcohol of every description this dreadful evil which has spread so far and wide even in the church of the living god which he purchased with his own blood there is hardly a church in our land which has not felt its deadly influence in eighteen ninety two mr hyler who is a splendid organizer and my brother joined forces the society was incorporated according to the laws of the state of new york with mr hyler as president mr george f langenbacher treasurer colonel hadley vice president and superintendent the badge is a blue button or pin with a white cross a very pretty emblem indeed worn on the coat or cravat for the last three years my brother has been giving his entire time to the blessed gospel of the christian abstainers union it is non-political and interdenominational and the most active gospel temperance work now carried on in any country its organ is the union gospel news of cleveland ohio this paper devotes a page each week from my brother's pen to the spread of this blessed and highly successful work over a year ago the colonel broke down from heart disease and nervous prostration through the kind and skillful agency of the great battle creek sanitarium and dr j h kellogg its president my brother has so far recovered his health as to be able to go ahead in his work and he is probably reaching more souls preventing more boys from becoming drunkards and helping to rescue more men who are drunkards than he has ever done during the entire fourteen years of his busy christian life his headquarters are at present at the women's temple chicago illinois he has started since his conversion sixty missions many of which are being successfully carried on today and have become permanent soul-saving institutions thousands of drunkards have knelt at their altars and have become christian men and women his noble faithful wife has stood by him through it all among his eight children who are living one is a protestant episcopal clergyman and another the youngest son is fitting himself for the ministry at cambridge massachusetts the dear old macaulay water street mission is spreading itself all over the earth through its faithful converts praise the lord oh the love that sought me oh the blood that bought me oh the grace that brought me to the fold wondrous grace that brought me to his fold end of chapter nineteen